And now for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PNR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Well, hello, content marketers. I'm Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 104 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded Monday, November 9th, 2015. Okay, folks, it's time to play your favorite game, which is Who's Got the Crazy This Week? Our contestants, first up hailing from New York, we have that trust fund baby and self-proclaimed builder of walls, Donald Trump, who did stand-up and, yeah, I guess you'd call it dancing as the host of Saturday Night Live this weekend, proving he's either completely insane or the most brilliant troll that has ever been. Next up, Ben Carson, who seems to have been simultaneously the angriest young man ever and believes that the Egyptian pyramids were built by Joseph to store grain. Perhaps they were wearing Technicolor dream coats. And our next contestant on Who's Got the Crazy This Week? My home state of Texas. Yes, the entire state, folks, where apparently in Norway the word Texas has become synonymous with the actual word crazy. Apparently they haven't heard of Florida. Then our next two contestants drove here together from Crazy Town, and they are the groups who are upset about Starbucks holiday paper cups and the fact that they have nothing on them except the color red and green, joined with the groups that filed a petition to Change.org to stop Phil Collins from starting back up his career and getting back into the Susu studio. Oh, I saw what you did there. I saw it with my own two eyes. And that brings us to us. Not to be outdone, Joe and I are joining this crazy game show. We've got all the news from content marketing, digital publishing, audience development strategies that are all controlled by the government, of course. We've got rants that make us feel like that time we were probed by aliens. We've got raves that make us feel like we just watched that new Japanese trailer for The Force Awakens. That's right. This show is all it takes to convince you that Justin Bieber really is a lizard person. Nicki Minaj and Jay-Z actually are the same person. The Middle Ages didn't actually exist. The moon landing is fake. Tupac is still alive. And the Denver airport really is the headquarters of the Illuminati. Okay, let's get out of all those things and let's get this game show started. And for that, it's time to me to introduce my colleague, my friend, my co-host, and someone who may or may not be able to control the weather. He's the reason that the Internet actually is colored orange. Mr. Joe Polizzi, how are you, my friend? My favorite part of that whole thing was uh, Florida. (laughs) Apparently, apparently Texas and Florida. I love that. That was uh, yeah. Where do you where do you keep up on all this? Like, I don't have the pop culture experience that you get well i mean how do you do this it's very hard work my friend i do it i do it with very hard work and uh, i've got a li- a whole library full of research monkeys that actually go out and uh, and find these tidbits of information for us every week it is, it is the sweat blood and tears that i put into this show yeah so this is the first time we've actually been recording in the same hotel since uh, back at uh our content marketing event in Singapore, and I think uh, that's right. You know, this is now we're going to be doing this a lot lately because we've got Boston and New York this week for the master classes. We'll probably have to do the same thing <laughs> next week when we're in San Diego. I'm assuming. <laughs> right. Well, if the internet connection continues the same way, we're going to have to continue to do this. Well, we should. It's actually, amazing that we're in the same hotel and it's a horrible internet connection. Well, we should actually tell people. So usually we record this via Skype, but we since neither you or I can get a solid internet connection. I've got a cell phone <laughs> glued to my ear, and I'm speaking into a microphone and an earbud in the right ear. So this is this is as it, high tech as we could possibly get. This is just multiple devices working together. <laughs> oh, anyways, right. my well, friend, should, we, should we to the news? Let's 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 kick right into it before uh, cell phone coverage just goes out. We have nothing. Exactly we'll actually have right. to do All this right. in person. <laughs> Our first story comes to us courtesy of Adweek, um, and the headline is Nine Fascinating Statistics in Digital Marketing This Last Week, which goes on to very, very quickly get into it. No lead story here. It's basically right into the selected nine of the most interesting digital marketing statistics from the past seven days. Enjoy them below. And there goes through a number of them, including some social media statistics and some uh, web usage ex- uh, statistics. The one that sort of stood out to me, and I know it stands out to you as well, is this one on uh, on Facebook users becoming lurkers and not a lot of sharing going on. What did you make of that? Well, yeah. What does it say? That uh, sharing is down 50%. It's 34% of Facebook users. Yeah, 34%. So, exactly. So, yeah, so I can do math. 66% in the, last <laughs> quarter, in the last quarter of Facebook users did not post a status update. That's a lot of lurking going That's on. right. Exactly. So basically, there's there's few, and this is a trend. This is not just something that happened in the last quarter. This is it seems to be getting lower every quarter, and so 
there are fewer and fewer content creators and most of us are just sort of watching. And this kind of digs into exactly what you were saying that, you know, Facebook is just like a new television network where we're just going to end up watching what's going on. It's pretty amazing. You know, the, the, the thing that stood out to me in this whole thing was the fact that, you know, it's, it's, that it's two thirds didn't post one at all, which means that, you know, the, the encouragement for those, you know, this, this sort of the, 80, 20, 90, 10, 95, 5, you know, that you see participating in online community, which has been a well-known stat for a long time, that in most online communities, it is a very small percentage of the users of that community who actually create content and a very large number that actually consume content. I, I think what it, what it, what the interesting thing to me is that how this affects what we think of when we think of marketers. Because if they start losing, this is a really interesting almost antithesis of the, the, the thing that we were talking about and we have been talking about for the last couple of weeks here, which is this idea of marketers getting crowded out with all of this, you know, the noisy content of breakfast getting uploaded and all of that. This is almost the opposite thing, which is if everybody stops posting up their pictures of their breakfast and their vacation and all that kind of stuff and starts lurk, well, then all of a sudden the only posts that are left are going to be marketing posts, which, of course, is going to make the entire platform not terribly uh, you know, um, interesting for most users. And it, it, I mean, this is, a real, this is a real shot across the bow for Facebook to get this, you know, this under control. Well, do you really think it's a problem? Because that's why they're, they have the relationships going on with publishers. I don't think they're concerned about the loss of content i think because last i saw they still had one billion people that were engaging in the network at least watching it over the last quarter so they've got plenty of people they got plenty of eyeballs and if there's fewer content creators but there's still that engagement what what does it matter if there's fewer people actually posting content and it starts to actually turn well it's into a good point and, this, and well yeah this i mean this study didn't go into it but i have to i mean my gut instinct tells me that the reason, I mean, at least it's the reason, I mean, I don't get my news from Facebook, right? I don't go to Facebook to read the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or any of those magazines. I go there because my friends are there and I want to, you know, I want to peek into their lives and I want to see what they're doing and they're happy and their kids and all those kinds of things. And oh, by the way, there happens to be an article from New York Times or, uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal there that I that might grab my attention and be also engaging to me. So I think what it does is it starts to shift the priority of the content around to such a degree where it becomes a place for the news that also happens to be a place where your friends post stuff. And quite frankly, if it becomes that, I, you know, there's no reason for me to use Facebook. And so, I mean, I've noticed it. I mean, personally, I've noticed it. Facebook encouraging me more to share and post. And, you know, I'm seeing a lot more of the this happened last year. Why don't you share with your friends? And when the football game starts, why don't you share the fact that you're watching it? And, you know, there's there's lots of encouragement now when you go onto Facebook to sort of share something. And I absolutely think that this is a long this is a problem for them in the long term if they don't get it fixed. But isn't it strange, though, that they've been prompting us so much to share more and it's down this significantly uh i mean isn't that odd they're trying harder to get us to share i think yeah i mean even with them trying yeah i mean it it's it feels like it could be you know uh you know a a fatigue you know the the facebook fatigue here where you know i mean I, i find myself sharing I don't know if less is the right, you know, I, I don't know the data on this, whether I share less now or whether I share the same amount or, or more even, but it feels like I'm sharing less and I'm consuming more than I, than I have in the past. I certainly am more, you know, I, I'm, it's funny because I was actually just thinking about this last week where I was like, wow, what, you know, <clears throat> when I share something, I don't want to be that guy, you know, who's like every other post is, you know, you, you, you in your feed. So I, I always sort of, thinking about how often I actually post a picture or whatever because I just don't want to be overwhelming everybody with my stuff. But it's interesting. I wonder if that's sort of a general fatigue trend now where it's like everybody's sort of like, well, I don't want to – I'd rather consume content than actually create it. I think that it's very – I'm posting a lot less on Facebook than let's say I did three, four years ago because I'm actually a lot more thoughtful about – well, hopefully uh, people think I'm – I only try to share something when it's somewhat relevant. I'm going to a new city. Something really cool happened. The kids did this. But other than that, I'm not posting anything about my general thoughts, feelings about anything either way. And I, I think that goes with the majority of my friends are doing the same thing. I think the other thing is, Robert, right. 
is the fact that you have an aging population on Facebook because the the, sure, the younger absolutely. the younger audience has dropped out into Snapchat and Instagram, also a Facebook property, but but not on Facebook itself. And so I would imagine, and I don't have the stats for this, but I'm under the assumption that the younger populations post more than an older population. And now you've got a lot of people that are just watching the news, watching the news I, of their friends' lives in front of them. Well, I think so. That, <clears throat> so there's a, that, that's a really good point, because if you, if you actually go further into this article, they actually talk about the, the, the number three stat from this article is basically saying that over 200,000 consumers across 34 markets, they found that while Facebook is the biggest of all the social platforms, it's not the most visited, which, of course, is YouTube for visitation. And there you go. I mean, if you think about it, YouTube certainly isn't a content creation social media network. It's a con- certainly a content company. Let's, let's be clear. The community or comment section of any YouTube page is fraught with you know danger and ridiculousness. But it's basically... I go to YouTube to watch or watch videos or listen to music. I certainly don't go to interact with my friends or anything like that. And so there you go. It's people really in the mood to consume, listen to content. You know, just like everything else, that competes for our attention. And so we may be, you know, it may be that that content consumption is actually competing for the idea of content creation. And so we're starting to see the younger generation want to consume more than actually create more. Well, I think you're seeing it with every platform, right? I mean, I think you're seeing it yeah. with, with even on Snapchat. You're seeing more the larger brands getting in there. Some of the sponsored, uh, whatever they call them, the Snapchats, sponsored Snapchats that are in there. Those are doing quite well because the the younger population who's ever on there, they're in, actively engaging. They're actually watching it. They're actually engaging in the content, but they're not necessarily creating on a regular basis. And it seems like as and the social platform evolves, they, evolved, just, cr- they just killed their thing, didn't they? Didn't Snapchat just kill their their whole? They killed their own. Yeah, they they killed their own content creation group. They still have brands that are creating content on the platform, sponsored. Gotcha. Okay. They still have that. And and if you look at, uh, you look at ESPN, you look at CNN. They all have their own like Snapchat things. And I'm not on Snapchat, so I'm the worst person to talk about this. But they all have their own own little updates (laughs) every day. We should probably move off of that one because. We're we're gonna start a new podcast all about Snapchat. Oh, we don't ever Snapchat. use it, but hey, we think we're qualified right. enough to talk about it. the 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 last well, one, exactly. that I, the last uh, stat here that I thought was interesting was the wearable stat. Thirty nine point five million U.S. adults will have utilized wearables uh, by the end of this year. Fifty eight percent jump year over year. What What I'm most interested in here is. You know, and we talked about companies like Nike that are taking that data, if you want to call it quantified life or whatever, and they're using that data to communicate directly, using content from the data directly with the people where they're engaging with on the like uh, the Nike Your Year thing. I just think is phenomenal. Where you know, if you have their app, they know where you've run and what your goals are, and then they sent you that video at the end of the year, and it shows actual pictures of oh, here's where you. You ran by this location and ran by that location, and it's all really done well. It's about two, two minutes long, very motivational, and by the end it says, here's what we want you to hit at the end of the year, and it was all done through a computer, through, uh, through machine. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's fascinating from a content creation standpoint where we were using the oh, data to directly create the content. It's, I mean, and you and I have talked about this many times. This is just the tip of the iceberg yeah. of this, right? I mean, the Internet of Things and the ability for wearables and not just wearables, but the things that we interact with, our refrigerator, the you know, furniture, items in the store, the data that that's going to provide for, you know, good and bad. And we'll certainly talk about this in the, in the next story a little bit. But the, the opportunity that that provides for content creators to start to create a more meaningful experience by the way, both on the product side, as you just mentioned, with something like Nike, but also on the marketing side with, you know, better user, you know, communities, better blogging, better online magazines, better everything to use that data to present a more personalized or personaized experience is, is just it, we're just getting to the beginning of this thing. You know, I mean, it's just now happens to be sort of the the idea of the Fitbit and and, and uh, you know sort of quantified of our exercise and sleep patterns and walking steps et cetera et cetera but as we get further into this it's just going to get more and more and more 
you know, complex as well as, you know, a bigger opportunity. Yeah, so I didn't see any other stats in here that just really tickled my fancy, so... You know, the ones that did, did. Well, as so. soon as we're done tickling your fancy, then we need to move on because your fancy is it's all your about fancy me, is friend. all we need to tickle in life. I mean, that's I want to make sure that we continue to keep you tickled, my friend. Exactly. So let's move on to our next story, which is coming to us courtesy of the Harvard Business Review, um, which is actually finally a article that I'm not sort of disappointed in in terms of HBR's publishing uh, editorial strategy here. The big hat tip here to uh, Dr. Tim Walters, who's a friend and family of the show, of course, who sent this over to us um, as something maybe to talk about. It comes from uh, a guy I know, actually, fairly well, and I'm proud to know him, Doc Searles, who, of course, uh, was one of the authors of the Clue Train Manifesto. And his uh, the article title is Ad Blockers in the Next Chapter of the Internet. And Doc starts this off by saying, on uh, the end of September, Tech Dirt posted... Uh, a new article which said you can now turn off ads on Tech Dirt, basically explaining all the reasons why they were starting to grant readers the power to not see ads. And basically, the telling line for him was the line that says, We're going to now allow you, this is Tech Dirt talking now, we're going to now allow you to decide how you best want to support this site and trust you to figure out the best way rather than forcing the choice upon you. Um, and as he points out, but note, still who holds the power here or agency in this non-negotiation? It's the publisher, not the reader. Um, and then the 100 comments that followed, as he points out, were all approving. Um, and basically, he goes on to talk about the disruption of ad blockers and how that's really changing the entire mindset of the way data is gathered, the way the Internet behaves, and the way that consumers will ultimately grasp back power and start to renegotiate their relationships with the people that they do business with. And this is something that Doc has been on for quite some time. Having known him, he's want to go off on a rant on this quite a bit. What, I mean, so what did you think before I go on? What did you think about this, Joe, and this and this article about ad blockers from Doc Searles? Well, the the, the Google Trends chart was fascinating to me. So if, if you look at the, yeah. the, between ad blocking, ad blockers and do not track, and you look at their right. search ter- relative search volume over time, there was a point in 2012 that they were almost exactly the same, like same interest. And then from that moment on, ad blockers just went off the charts and do not track has actually gone down. It's just fascinating right. to me that it's all about the user experience with their with advertising, and people, for the most part, don't care. They're getting tracked. I mean, they don't. <laughs> and as long as it doesn't like hurt their functionality, and, and they can get the content they want, and it, and it doesn't nag on them like an ad does. That's all they really care about. So it's almost like, and they t- and, and Doc hits on this a little bit where. People just don't care about the privacy thing as much anymore, but they really care about ads that are not relevant in front of them, and they want to turn those off, but has nothing to do with brands collecting data. And I think everyone is almost just relegated to the fact that, okay, they're going to get my data, but just don't throw, show me an ad that's irrelevant. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, and it's, you know, and this is the, this is the, you know, the promise of programmatic advertising, right, which is, we're going to help you develop, you know, personalized messages for your consumers that will be highly targeted and relevant, which, of course, is, you know, that's that's a game that you 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 never can win. You it will never be satisfied in an ad. You just you, there is a certain level to which you can target an ad. And we all know what that is. Right. We have it. Right? We experience it every day when we go on Amazon and we see what content might be relevant for you. And you're getting completely irrelevant content to you in that context of time. But you three weeks ago, the you of three weeks ago, it was perfectly relevant for, right? You know, I saw one Facebook post today, which was a great one. It's like, you know, an author posting up basically the fact that his book gets targeted to him every time he goes on Facebook in an ad. It's like, you know, this is not, you know, it's highly targeted, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, it is relevant to him, but it's in, in, in in a very different contextual way. And it's a fascinating thing to, to see doc go off on this and and start to talk about it. But I, I think ultimately, I think I would, I would, I would cut a little short his sort of, his sort of predictions, you know, dire predictions, um, and say that really what we're talking about here is an evolution 
in the way at content will be managed and used by publishers rather than the death of advertising, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we've talked about this before, but I, I think I don't I, I don't predict sort of this tipping point where ads tomorrow will be gone or something like that or that sort of thing. It's just how effective and for what purpose they are used. Ultimately, I think that screen real estate will will start to you know that pendulum will start to swing. I guess if that's the right. Do you do metaphor. you agree with his first take was which is the ad tech bubble will burst, and that and part of that says uh, the see a surveillance based marketing will take a dive. I, I don't necessarily uh, yeah. see that happening. The data doesn't show that. I don't. Well, so you know, I mean, so the the, the real question is define bubble, right? I mean, you know, in, in, in other words, does it does it pop? To the extent where, basically, you know, ads go out of ex- you know ads go extinct or programmatic goes extinct or the data collection behind advertising goes extinct. I I don't disagree. I, I don't agree with that. His his contention there. Do I think programmatic advertising will ultimately be a let you know there? In other words, if you look at what Wall Street right now looks at, there's sort of two schools of thought in Wall Street about programmatic advertising, and Madison Avenue, by the way, but but two schools of thought there is that programmatic advertising and targeting of advertising is on this high growth trajectory, and it's going to be a, you know, and it's and it's got some room to grow left. And the other school of thought is, is that it's a bubble that it's about to burst. For programmatic, I would lean way more to the bubble than I would to the to the high growth market. But I don't think that means advertising and the idea of advertising is a bubble. And I don't believe that the idea of collecting data as a means of developing a better experience is a bubble. And so he tends to go extreme, as Doc tends to do, in terms of his idea of calling it surveillance-based marketing. And, and, and I would tend to look at it as using data to develop a better experience, you know, Understanding that all of us marketers aren't necessarily Bond villains, where we're up in a white tower looking at something, but he tends to sort of move toward that direction given his background, and so and we've had fun. He and I have had fun debates about this. I know Doc personally a little bit, and so it's it's it's, it's you know it's it's he and I have debated about this a little bit, but and and I respect his opinion about it. I just don't think he's absolutely right on it. Do you agree with the last point, which is about? the new frontier of marketing will be service, not sales. I thought that was interesting. He's saying basically there's a huge green field that will grow as more and better intelligence starts to flow back and forth between customers and companies. And basically talks about the fact that we'll move away from acquisition into what I'm, this is what I'm reading into it, away from acquisition into more retention loyalty marketing. Does that? Well, this is much, as much yeah, as much as Doc is ever going to say content marketing is important. This is him saying is content marketing That's is important. That's what I was reading. Absolutely, yeah. you know. I mean, he's basically saying that the, the idea is to you know this is Jay Bear's you know uh, help you know not uh, whatever it is. I, I can't remember Jay's quote, but it's you know, basically helping, not selling. Yeah. Um, you know, and the, and and what is it? Uh, you know, when Ann talks about. Uh, don't shill, but, uh, you know, educate or whatever it is and our, you know, delivering value. You know, this is the idea of basically adapting the marketing idea of marketing into something that services and creates value for the consumer. Now, he sees it moving much more into, I, you know, I only know this because I know some of the context here. He has this whole project that he's been working on at, at, at forever, it seems, here, actually, ironically, here in Boston, um, called the VRM movement, which is Vendor Relationship Management Movement, which is his idea of what would replace CRM, which is changing the power to the consumer and creating service types of models with companies that they want to do business with. I'm not sure if it goes there, but this is as close as he's going to go, and I'll, I'll totally agree with the, the idea here, which is refocusing marketing instead of selling into a creation of value for consumers. I, I'm totally behind that, yeah. Well, I think the whole, I mean, basically he's talking about the dawn of CRM here. And, I, and what I re- read into that, that is that as much as we talk about marketing automation being, oh, yeah, we're going to get a lead, we qualify that lead, we score that lead, and we're going to communicate with that customer in a smart, intelligent way to get them to ultimately buy, the way that I read this is we're going to have a customer and we're going to communicate with that customer in an intelligent way so that we can keep that customer longer, help that customer buy more, help that experience that with the brand as they have it normally, but but outside of that acquisition process, which I think is just that sound, 
Yeah, it sounds it's like content marketing that, to me. Doesn't it? Yeah, it does. <laughs> we have to send a little uh, thank you present to, to Doc. We have to see if we could use the term. I don't think he would ever do that. He probably does. Does he even recognize? <laughs> well, I'm going to email. I'm emailing him. I'm, I'm, I'm sending him an email because the article just came out either yesterday or today. And so I'm going to send him an, an, a note and congratulate him and, and, and all of that. And it's been a while since I've talked to him anyway. So I'll I'll find out. I'll, yeah, I'll let ask me know. Him. Let me know what he says. I, I guess my question yeah. was: Does it, the term resonate with him at all, or does he not like it, or does he not? It does care? not. By the way, it yeah. does. It I know that for a fact that it does not. I've had this conversation with him. It, it, we had this over beers, and he doesn't like the term. Boo. <laughs> well, anyway, we can move on yeah, now to another on. story. All right. Um, let's, our next uh, story comes to us courtesy of HubSpot.com, and the article uh, is entitled Inside Story uh, on Design Disruptors, Their Documentary Film. And the article opens up by saying, many a marketing team, big and small, has gathered around the conference table to brainstorm a list of crazy ideas. You know what I'm talking about? Those big, hairy, audacious goals discussed so often that they've earned a place in the business lexicon. And so basically, this uh, blog post goes on to detail what David Malpass and the folks at InVision, I-N-Vision, InVision, um, not only did the marketing team there uh, that this growing startup take on the challenge of creating a feature-length documentary, but they've also done a trailer um, and all of it in less than one year's time, and it's garnered all kinds of international attention. So this is a small startup company. This is right up your alley, Joe. Small startup company creating content using a documentary creation to do this and sort of talk about their design sort of focus and the importance of design in today's world. What do you think? Well, I, you know I absolutely love this idea because we just, <laughs> we just did it. Um, we, you know, right. Content Marketing Institute, we... Uh, we invested into a documentary called The Story of Content, which you were a feature star, by the way. And, uh, and it's done incredibly well. And I love this thinking because instead of – and the article talks to this too, right? Instead of thinking about, oh, how am I going to get the next you know, lead in? How am I going to get the next project in? And we focus our marketing so short term. And they, by the way, they talk a lot in the article about it's hard to quantify – the effects of this, but what you're really looking at is you're trying to grow and build a market instead of, and you're basically under the belief, if you do this, if you create a documentary for your industry like they did here, you actually believe that a rising tide lifts all ships. That if you, uh, if you focus on something that this is that important to your industry and people start to watch it and share it and it's a quality piece of content, everyone, you will benefit, but everyone in your industry will benefit. Um, that's and, right, and I can't think. Of, I cannot think. Of, what's the Breville, the Breville documentary that Andrew Davis talks about all the time? Uh, fat, sick, oh, or dead. Know. I think it's fat, sick, or fat, sick, or dead. Oh, that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the one, same. the guy who went around the country and exactly. And, uh, he went on the. He did the. Yeah. He did the juice diet, the blending juice diet, That's and all right. that stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. and and what I love is when Andrew Davis does the analysis of that. He said yes. Breville sold out. I mean, this thing got so popular. It was on Netflix. People were watching it. They were sharing it. They thought it was fantastic. And Breville sold out. They they were part of the underwriting of this thing happening. But so did every other juicer, too. So That's it's right. just interesting that, you know, if you really care about the industry, this is something to do and to put forward with. And, you know, we're seeing things happen with our documentary that we never anticipated. I mean, the fact that, you know, the marketing team put together a fantastic screening kit because we've been getting calls from agencies and brands that say, hey, we want to get our entire marketing team together. Do you have anything that can help us through this? And <laughs> they put this fantastic screening kit together that you can have conversations and questions and, and uh, have discussions about what we cover in the documentary, which I think is phenomenal. But that's the kind of thing it's that you don't, a, yeah. you don't anticipate happening from doing something like this. And I, and I actually think... For a startup, for a small company, I mean, a big company should do this too, but for a small company, this is a really good David versus Goliath scenario that you can go in with and say, hey, you know what? We're not going to fight hand-to-hand combat. We're not going to do the same things that all these other brands are doing. We're going to do something different and stand out. And yes, it's going to take time, and yes, it's going to cost a little bit more, but man, it could really make some amazing impact, and that's why I love this story. Yeah, it's it's you know, and and my only hope here is is that this isn't just one stunt, right? You know that this is part of a larger, more integrated program where what they're ultimately trying to do here is build an audience, 
and that it doesn't just become something that gets launched and then forgotten. I hope that they have, you know, you know, because as as much as you were saying, you know, for example, with what we're doing with the documentary and there was all these unanticipated sort of benefits and ideas that came out of it. There was also a plan and it also fits into a more integrated strategy that we've got going on here. So just doing it as a campaign or a stunt doesn't isn't nearly as as powerful as sort of thinking about it in terms of the long run as a as a big tentpole piece in a more integrated content marketing strategy. Well, that's a great point, Robert, and I think it's worth saying that if you were going to do a documentary and you haven't built an audience yet, at least a, what we would call a minimum viable audience, you you might fail. It's a very tough, risky proposition. But what this company did is they already you know were working on the regular blogs, the integrated eBooks, the webinars. They were already building the and have built an audience so that they can now go out to that audience and say, "Hey, look what we're building," and everyone gets on board with that. If you were if you had no reputation, you had no uh, loyalty. Uh, your audience didn't know, like, and trust you yet, uh, you'd have a very tough time doing this. Because, I mean, you'd have to really, yeah. you'd have to advertise. You you would absolutely right. have to advertise to get this launch. They don't have to do that. Like, we didn't have to do that with the documentary because we had a huge community behind us that said, wow, this is fantastic. And they wanted to share it, and they did share it. And I think that's the difference. And we talk about that. Obviously, we're talking about this tomorrow at the Masterclass, the, the, the Continent model, where you build that base first of, of your audience, and then once you build a base on one platform, then you diversify instead of yep. just saying, oh, no, we're going to do this great campaign. That'll, it'll never work. That <laughs> so it's great. funny how it works out that way, it right? Always does. It always <laughs> does. Yeah. All right. Moving on to our next uh, and final story of the show, uh, this article coming to us courtesy of Digiday.com. And this, I love this article. This was this was something. It was a finally article that I just went. This this is great. There's a takeaway here for this. This is the headline here is publishers create new job called platform wranglers, and it starts out by saying the rise of a distributed publisher has given rise to a new role at media companies, the platform ambassador, and so they use the example of Vox Media. And Vox Media is hiring for a director of partner platforms who will, uh, in the words of Vox Media, quote, establish and own the relationship with all major content platforms such as Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, as well as work with Vox's own product, edit, and revenue teams to build editorial strategy direction according to the job posting. CNN is also planning to build a team dedicated to off-platform distribution under Andrew Morse, who's the GM of CNN Digital. And this is an acknowledgment, says the article, that managing platforms can't be a part-time thing. This I, I got to tell you, Joe, I love this article for so much because this is basically at what we call a chief listening officer, what we've called in our class for a long time a uh-huh. chief listening officer, coming to life and really making strategic the idea of managing the relationships of content to the social media channels that it's on. It's it's just a really cool thing. Did you did you come away with the same impression? Yeah, absolutely. Boy, it's rare that we both ab- see an article and absolutely agree to the same extent. But when I saw this one come out, I think that social media gets, you know, has been in maybe for a little while about, hey, it's all about this execution and you have to tweet, and you have to post right. and you have to follow analytics and it's it's a it's a much very focused on the execution execution and not as much on the strategy. I love this position because it's all about strategy. It's all about looking at, here's the platforms we should use and why. Here's the platforms we shouldn't right. use and why. This is not just about posting, and, and it's all about integration and focusing on your organizational goals and what makes the most sense. And I, it makes sense that this is first a publisher thing, where you, know, you would see a Vox Media, you would see a CNN do this, but I would see this role in every organization possible. And, and by the way, it goes beyond just social media platforms as well. It'll go on you know, content syndication oh, platforms. Absolutely. And, and yeah. you, could, you could even expand this role. I mean, you could. I mean, I mean, tell me if I'm right on this one. You could expand it into sort of the Scott Brinker marketing technologist role as well a little bit if it makes sense because you're just talking – you sure. basically talk about the technology platforms you're engaging in. That's so. right. Yeah. I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the the key thing to me is, and this is something that I run across so often when I'll when I go into a larger organization, <clears throat> and I start talking to them about 
what they're doing from a content perspective, and especially when I start talking to those at the channel level, right? So social media teams, the blog teams, the web content team, the email team, you know, the teams that are sort of managing the various parts of the content execution. So many times my first question usually to them is, oh, are you managing a joint editorial calendar? Do you have a joint strategy? Do you have a joint process for doing this? And they sort of will tilt their head, you know, sort of the dog that sort of heard something that didn't understand and like, <laughs> look at me and I'm going, you know, is this, this, you know what I'm talking about? And they go, oh, yes, we have a calendar. And then you start getting, digging deeper and deeper. And what you find out is that so often the editorial calendar isn't really a calendar. It's just a pipe, a backlog of content that has been thrust over the fence by product marketing, demand generation marketing, brand marketing, PR, whoever, all these pieces of content that are competing for priority in the channels you know, that are available to them, the Twitter channel, the Facebook channel, the LinkedIn channel, the blog channel, the web channel, and it's quite literally just haphazardly done. It's just literally a list of everything that they have to do. So it's not really a calendar. It's more like... Well, it's a calendar, but it's a to-do list. It's, yeah. it's, it's not All sort activities. of strategically looking forward. It's basically just a list of where your stuff falls in the list of stuff that has to get out. And it's like, that's not a calendar, and it's certainly not strategic. And so looking at this position as a relationship of basically, first of all, to your point, why we're even on this channel and what is its purpose should it be a paid media channel? Should it be an earned media channel? Should it be an owned media channel? And then working with that to understand how the content is going to be most effective across that and which ones need to be stood up, which ones need to be dismantled and all that kind of stuff. This is this is how a media company thinks and it's how a marketing organization should start to think. Now, I was had a, a presentation to uh, at a manufacturing conference last week and we had this discussion, and I was talking about this kind of strategic look at you know building your own platform, and then how you would leverage in, in different social media platforms. And the one person raised their hand and said, "We don't have the resources. That we're doing all this stuff. We're doing it on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and everything, and we're just we're doing all kinds of stuff." And I said, "I didn't say that you had to do this and what you're doing now." I said, you probably should look at what you're doing now, and most of it you stop doing. <laughs> and, and ask, right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I can't tell you how often, I mean, I don't, can't even remember if I said this on the last show or not, but how often I'll go up to somebody that is telling me they don't have the bandwidth because they have to manage all these channels, and I'll say, what if you just stopped? What would happen if you stopped the email newsletter on Fridays? What would happen if you stopped the Facebook page updates on Fridays? What would happen if you stopped every bit of social media stuff that you're doing? Who who would call you up and go, I miss it. I want it. And, and if it's somebody other than the CEO or the VP, then you got a problem. Then you have your you basically have bandwidth that's gone unexploited. You can you've got the time. You just need to use it in a different way. Well, that's why I love when we run that very very simple and it is so simple little exercise where they list us that you put your your audience persona at the top or the specific target audience that you're going after. And then you just list all the ways that you're communicating with that audience, including your email newsletter, your print newsletter, your in-person events. They list all of them. You know, the average for a you know large B two B company would be about thirteen to fifteen different ways. And I said, list right. the business purpose behind each one. What's yeah, the purpose exactly. of the blog? What's the purpose of Other, Facebook and, and for that engagement's audience? not a good enough one. Yeah, <laughs> it has to go to and we talk about that. It has to go to sales, cost savings, or loyalty. A retention in some way. Right. You have to you have to put the line. You don't have to get there directly, but you have to it has to lead to one thing and then to the next thing. And if you just said engagement, then you have to okay, well what engagement gets you to sales savings or <laughs> well, what yeah. What what and they and then I'm like, okay, well, you either need to stop doing it or you have to go back and tell the blog editor why they're blogging five times a day. Please. That's the thing that frustrates me the most when <laughs> we go Please just do it. Please, please. We had this conversation. We had quite a few times. I remember the one time in when we were doing a masterclass in Toronto with the the LinkedIn masterclass, and there was that super large technology company, and she said that she was targeting eighteen different personas on the blog, and I'm just like, what? I said, and we, you and I both said, well, we found your problem. Uh, it's exactly you just right. you're how's that targeting. working out for yeah. you? <laughs> yeah, how's that? How's that for you? And but she didn't know she was 
being judged on activity. She didn't right. know what the exactly. ultimate purpose was, and that blows my mind. Like, if you have people working in the content creation group, you have to tell them why. Like, why? What's their purpose? That's right. So that's right. That's anyways. right. And and stop and and stop measuring productivity as a as a measure of how much we're producing. That's I mean that's. I mean, I'm, I get on a rant. Well, about I love that. your, you know, your this thing- idea that, that this idea that you know our, our inventory is going to be twelve white papers this next year. So we're going to write a white paper a month. So, but why twelve? Well, because that's how many we need to be productive. It's like really, Did, what if one does the job of two of them or yeah. three of them? Can we do nine? You know, I mean, the the idea of quantity equaling productivity is is just a silly, silly idea. Ed, that comes out of the industrial age, not not the age that we live in now. Well, one of one of my favorite quotes from you is, and make sure I get this right: "We want to create the minimum amount of content for the maximum amount of results." I think is what you said. Exactly, and I love that. Exactly, I use that all the time. I, I tell people I came up with it, and I look really smart when I say it, and then I tell you that I gave you credit, <laughs> but I really didn't. <laughs> Anyways. Anyway, well, speaking of giving credit where credit is due, we should get to our wonderful, wonderful sponsor who has, wow, just another week in a row and just a great asset here, I think. You know, I like this one. This this is, yeah, it's this really is good. called Lean, you'll like this one, Lean Content Marketing. I know. I know. I, I'm, I'm already you're a already, fan. You're already, you're already like, oh, I think I'm going to download this one. Thanks to our friends at, uh, at Marketo this week for sponsoring this old marketing we've got a great content asset for you to look at this week whether you are a large organization or a small organization getting your content marketing machine up and running is tough and if you've been listening to this show you really know how tough it is a lot of companies lack the budget resources and time to implement an effective content marketing strategy that's true as well in this ebook you will learn to, de- to leverage the resources you already have. I like that. You don't have to go find new ones. You already probably have them. They're going to tell you how. They already have to create the content needed to fuel demand to drive your business. So you need to go download this wonderful piece of content, Lean Content Marketing. And the short link is bit.ly slash marketo dash lean dash marketing. That's bit.ly slash marketo dash lean dash marketing. It'll also be in the show notes. Make sure you check it out. I love this whole idea of lean content marketing, and we, I was looking at it. Uh, some very, very wise and sage advice that you're going to want to follow. So, And thanks again to our friends at Marketo for, uh, for basically keeping the lights on here at this whole marketing. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you so much. I mean, I love this idea. I mean, the, the, the lean idea, I, I, I love for... One is the, 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 you know, this idea of certainly doing more with less, you know, this because, of course, I have too much money and too much time, said no marketing person ever in the history of the world. And so this idea of being able to do more with less is certainly a really valuable well, well, thing. Well, the so one thing – Kudos to them for no, creating No, and there's, there's two things. I mean they talk about building your content team, which I like. But the one thing I like, and we talk about this a lot – don't just repurpose. Plan for your repurposing. You plan up front for how you're going to use the content instead of what most companies do is they create the asset. and Then, just, then they sit around. They put the white paper on the table and say, well, how are we going to use this now in all the different ways and tweets? Well, you plan for it ahead of time before the assets exactly. created. So exactly. that's what this book will help you do. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, and I use and by the way, their 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 resource center I use in the masterclass. I use their because it's just a great example of when you go to their resource center, you know, you know, in de, you know, dependent upon your level of expertise in marketing automation, you can find the resources. It's not just a dumping ground for assets. You can actually go through and you can figure out path by step by step how you're gonna how you're gonna go through their resource center and understand marketing automation at a deeper level it's just a it's a it's a simple thing but most companies don't do it they just make it a a list of assets instead of sort of helping you through which assets you need to start reading and why so speaking of assets ladies and gentlemen it is yeah yeah it's far it's (laughs) it's hard kiss my assets hey hey i don't i can't change the the settings of the podcast we are clean don't be going that way (laughs) 
I didn't say a thing. It's letting your, you know, letting the aliens probe us uh, where they went right may. into that That's place. That we all know where that place is. What do you? I so you, you have you have this old marketing, and so you're you're getting I the first. I do have this old marketing, so I have a rant or a rave rather. I have a short rave um, that uh, that we'll go through, um, and then uh, yeah. So let's start with that. Um, this so. All right, so it's a, it's it's definitely a rave here. It, it starts off. It's an article, and 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 it, there was two this week, which is I'm super happy about from Harvard Business Review. Harvard Business Review was really disappointing me over the last like six months with the kind of it made basically took it off my bucket list as a place that I really wanted to write for. And so this week with Doc's article and with this one, it's just this was a great great article, and this one just came out today. And so it's hot off the press. And um, so the the name of it is What a Great Digital Customer Experience Actually Looks Like. And it's written by a guy, and I don't know this guy at all, um, although I'm going to contact him and introduce myself because I I, I like his thinking quite a lot. Um, Craig Borowski, I'm probably mispronouncing his name. He's a market researcher at Software Advice, which is a Gartner company that covers technology and the changing trends in CRM market. That's his bio anyway. And, he's, and the, the article goes through, it's, it's not a long article, it's, it's relatively short, <clears throat> and it goes through this idea of delineating between the customer experience and the digital customer experience. And of course, like Carla and I do in the, in the book that we wrote on experiences, he basically and we delineated as well. He says customer experience is defined as the quality of all consumers' encounters with a company's products, services, brands, etc. And we say that too. And basically, we do that to draw sort of the guardrails around what we're actually talking about in experiences. The book to the idea of marketing. In other words, we're not talking about product development here necessarily. We're talking about how do we use content as a product to drive a marketing result and. He actually starts to go through this, and he comes through a, a number of sort of best practices that he puts into place and says are really important for a business to understand as they start thinking about digital customer experiences. And some of them are like consistency that create loyalty, that relies on the internal IT. In other words, using consistency in terms of the way that you develop content and the user experiences that you're creating so that customers come to depend on them and how you depend on technology resources and able to do that. Then he talks about how that, and this is my favorite part of it actually, where he talks about how digital initiatives should complement every other customer journey, not be separate from them just because they're convenient. And it's a really cool point because in other words, what he says is when he talks about like after a physical experience and he uses the example of going to a sandwich shop and you get the sandwich and you have the sandwich in the shop itself and it's all fine. And then basically there's a sign saying go online and take a survey. Because why? Well, because it's convenient for the store and the company to, to do that. Yep. But it's not convenient for you to do that. It's not convenient. That's not part of a convenient experience for you. It's a convenient experience for them. But we think because it's digital, it's more convenient for everybody. And as he says, digital and online are not synonymous with convenience. And I just thought that was a, a really cool and important point. Um, and as Carl and I say in our book, you know, so it's it's beyond. Uh, it's you know, marketers have to go beyond this relationship with the customer that we have through these experiences with a product, with service, and we've got to develop these more meaningful experiences in both the physical and digital world to sort of expand on that idea. And whether you look at it sort of in this continuum, and you and I are thinking deeply about this even as we speak, Mm -hmm. this idea of product as content and content as product, which are sort of a spectrum of using content to drive more customer loyalty, Mm -hmm. better sales, et cetera, et cetera, the only way we get to that is, and he comes to the same conclusion here, is to adapt the marketing department's structure and purpose around the creation, management, and ultimate flow of content and the information um, that it provides, the consumption of content provides. And it's just a wonderful article that sort of details, he, you know, he takes a thousand words, what it would probably take me like five or six thousand to say. It's just very concise, very clear, very actionable, and just a great piece. Uh, what's the name of your book? <clears throat> Apparently, no, no, no. This his is, experience I'm, is the seventh era of marketing. So this, this is what I've I learned because some we have new listeners, and when I go out and speak, I, I always I always speak. I used to speak like people always knew me. I'd say, "Oh, in my latest book or in my third book." 
Now I always say, in my third book, Epic Content Marketing, in my latest book, Okay, Content fair enough. Fair so you want to say what, how Carl, point. Yeah, you want to say how, what Carla and I discuss in our book, Experiences. I'm just hey, I'm just throwing it. I'm that's trying a, to. Say. That's a fair critique. No, I am the worst. I'm I'm the I'm the worst at this. Just FYI, somebody I was at a I was at a presentation just last week, uh, and somebody said, "Oh, you've got some copies of your book with you," and I went, "No," and they were like, "Well, we'd buy a bunch if you had some." It's like, oh my gosh, I, I'm just an idiot. I just you know I don't think to bring books with me, and I don't think to do that kind of stuff. I'm just uh, yeah, I need to be better at it. So thank you for the reminder. I'll do it for you. That's okay. I'm, oh, thank I'm you. Would you just be my Sherpa? I'm selling. Would I'm, you be my marketing Sherpa? I, I Get will. Anytime that, marketing yeah, I'm Sherpa? much better at being critical of you than myself. <laughs> so anytime you're doing something wrong, I'll tell you about it. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, I, I appreciate I have, it. I have uh, this is very briefly three little raves just to, to talk about, and then I'm going to throw it over to you for this old marketing. The first one is actually really relevant to what you were just talking about which is this whole uh, you know, digital in-person experience thing. This is I have to throw some love out to Amazon. This is an article in USA Today. This was announced uh, yesterday, I believe, or two days ago. Online retailers getting physical, but it's all about how Amazon has launched their first physical bookstore in Seattle. And what I like about it is they're actually taking the data from online, so they're taking the, the best-reviewed books in each category, and they're putting them in their physical bookstore. Which I just think is awesome way to do it. It's it's so smart. Yeah. This great? is part of our class now, by the way. Yeah, uh, oh, it's part of our class now. I love that. But the, the, yeah. I, I want to yeah, link. It's such a great thing. And I want to link to this article because there's there's a few other stores in the article. They talk about Mod Cloth has been doing this, an indie clothing retailer. But they just talk about how the best part about it is is not necessarily generating the sales. It's the customer research. It's it, it's it, of course, and, and they're they're actually talking with customers and what they like and what they don't like firsthand, and that's the kind of data that they simply said they can't get through analytics, which is awesome to hear. It's a physical manifestation of persona development, which exactly is I mean, right. come on, that's just so smart. Well, and what I love about it is they were talking about the I think the same one in Modcloth that was saying they have they don't have near the selection. It's like a two percent of the selection they have online but they can go in they can try it out they might not have the color and they can deliver it to them next day at their house so this is really That's enabled right. because deliveries happen so fast this kind of thing and and of course i thought immediately about the reason why we have a print magazine chief content officer because of that i mean we in a lot of cases we want that kind of physical experience as well with the content not just the digital experience of course we have an event content marketing world as well see how i did that See how I did every yeah, time I said I love it. Yeah, I, said I see. Event, yeah, no, I you're, name, you're clever saying. that way. No, you're very, very clever <laughs> right, man. Here's the second you're one. Very, very clever. Here's man. the second one, and I love this one. This is this came out yesterday. Activision Blizzard launches movie and television studio. So basically, oh wow, oh I love oh, this. Interesting. So, so Activision Blizzard, which owns titles such as Skylanders, which my kids played for years, and now, unfortunately, my son's playing Call of Duty right now. Uh, but they, they uh -oh. own that they own that one as well. But they are launching a studio film studio to launch film versions of both Skylanders and Call of Duty, and they're going to continue to do this. And I just, of course, think it's beautiful because I think they will feed on each other. I think people that play the game now want to go see the movie, and people who happen to see the movie might want to play the game. And I just think, you know, they're really looking across screen to drive the business and telling fantastic stories. So I love this idea. I think you're going to see more and more of this happen with the gaming studios. Yeah. Of course. Well, it's, you know, in this case, this. I mean, we talked about this. We talked about this, I don't know, five or six shows ago where we said, this is something that is, this is a muscle that is just so well developed for media companies where they don't look at, you know, they, they look at how they can take a story and create valuable experiences across all different platforms for this. This is just something they do, right? I mean, it's whether it's Disney creating movies and then product and then toys and cartoons and television shows and magazines and comic books. And I mean, they just sort of look at that as a valuable product and say, this is an idea that we can monetize in multiple ways. 
And somehow product companies struggle at this, right? They struggle with the why of this. It's like taking the idea of what you stand for, whether it's soldering or manufacturing or cars or retail or whatever it is, and transforming that into a media property that delivers valuable experiences to consumers is not a weird idea. No. It's a very common idea in the media world. And so the reverse should be equally true. Well, and so that follows into the last one, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time oh, on I'm it. Oh, I'm glad. But, but, I'm so glad. But, uh, yeah, well, I have to throw that out there. Uh, last week I talked about uh, the whole idea that Grantland uh, should have been purchased by, by, uh, oh, right. uh, by Nike or Under Armour. You know, ESPN dumped Grantland, and, and Jay Acunzo had a great rebuttal article and said he wishes that could – and by the way, just going to his, his Medium site, he calls it Just Blew It instead of just do it which i love it <laughs> like you should have purchased yeah, i know i know Grantland. it's awesome yeah and the whole and yeah. i'm not going to go through each of the details but i think if you're interested in what it's going to take for companies to learn this new muscle that you're talking about because i think it plays hand in hand he really goes through multiple points on what he thinks needs to happen right now for companies like uh like uh, nike and under armor and you know all the companies parker hannafin and eaton and be, you know all these other companies to at least consider the opportunity of buying a media company he thinks that it would yeah. not happen yet but we could be close and we need to have that pinnacle moment and he's hoping for it and he kind of gives the prescription on how that's going to happen so i wanted to throw out a little bit of love to jay's article yeah, it's a good. It's a really good. I mean, as is usual with him, it's it's a really good article. It's it's you know, I happen to. I don't think it's. I mean, coming back to our bubble or, you know, pivotal point. I I, I would I would probably contend it's going to be a little more amorphous than that. It's not going to be so clear cut as to say you know somebody's going to come out and be, you know, the most amazing at this. It's going to happen slowly and surely, and you know, happen through s- smaller companies than bigger. You know, it's going to sort of be a. Uh, of slow rolling wave rather than sort of a, a crashing event. But I do believe that I do believe it's going to happen. I may be a little more optimistic than he is. Oh, I, I am the, too. The outlook there. I, I think it's good. I mean, it's already happening to a small degree. I mean, we've talked about a lot yeah, of the examples exactly. on the, with surf stitch and a number of other ones. So we're already seeing this happen. Yeah. I think what he, what he wants to see, and I would agree with that would kind of grease the skids a little bit. If, if, and he doesn't see it has to happen. He said, "A first mover has it has to be reported that uh, before yes, before because, that's, well, that's a good point. Before that's ESPN we could just say before ESPN glo- clo- closed Grantland, Nike was was in conversations with them about purchasing the property. Doesn't even have to happen. He just has to, he just wants people to start thinking that it's possible. Because you're right, when we get in front of these audiences and these marketers, they don't even consider that. They don't even look at it as an option. And us coming from the media background, we absolutely see it as an option." But they don't yet. So, there you yeah. go. Yeah. Very good. Well, those are awesome. Those are three good raves, man. There you go. I'm in a good mood. What yeah. you got for this old marketing, All my right. friend? I have a this old marketing. So this one, this one's kind of a fun one. It's a little bit, I guess, not completely off topic, but it's a little bit um, different. Um, and you'll understand why I use the word a little bit different when you hear what it is. So, um, so I saw the Steve Jobs movie this weekend. The one, um, the, the the Aaron Sorkin one. And it was good. Um, and I, it's good. I liked it very much. I liked it better than my wife did. And I liked it. And we, and I guess in order, I liked it way better than my wife or a friend did. And, and they liked it. You know, one of them hated it. And, and my wife liked it okay. And I really liked it a lot. You have to be in the mood for a play. I mean, it's it's very theatrical. It's very, the language is, it's very Aaron Sorkin. It's very fast moving. But if you're a geek, if you're a computer geek and you sort of grew up in that time frame, it's it's fascinating and it's just a wonderful um, sort of not only history lesson but interesting personality study. And he just does a – Fossbinder does a great job of, 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 uh, of doing Steve Jobs, I think, and others do as well. Even Seth Rogen is good as, as was. It's just really good. But it, 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 it inspired me enough that I went to go look at some of the things that they sort of throw away as sort of casual throwaway lines in the movie um, that are, you know, sort of part of the very, very early history of Apple and computers and personal computing in general. And I found this really cool site that we'll, of course, link to in the show notes um, that talks all about the history of the Apple II, um, which has, of course, got a central uh, role in terms of the movie itself. And I find this article that, that's on the site, and of course this is what we'll actually link to in the, in the show notes here, which is 
one of the very first national microcomputer magazines, in other words, a magazine that covered the idea of what microcomputers were really are, were started as a newsletter for a nonprofit. Um, and it was a newsletter that was for the Southern California, which also made me feel kind of fun and good. And it was the Southern California Computer Society, SCCS. Um, and it was this nonprofit, which was a group of people that were sort of into microcomputing and sort of getting together and hobbyists and all that kind of stuff. And they started this newsletter that was really around engaging all these people in the idea of, of microcomputing at the time. And so they got to started getting a little traction with it, and it started really helping membership and drive membership and all that kind of stuff. And ultimately got to the point where it was, after several issues, there was an advertising agency called McFeeders, um, Wolf, and Jones, and Bob Jones, one of the partners there, basically say, hey, look, we'll help you. We'll transform this magazine into something that's beautiful and can actually start to maybe get real value. And so they transformed the idea of the newsletter for the nonprofit, which now became a marketing platform, not only for the nonprofit, but actually a revenue center by selling ads and sponsorships in the actual magazine itself. And the first magazine as a magazine, glossy magazine, was released in 1976, um, and they changed the title from the newsletter to Interface, which was the name of the magazine. And they started with volume one um, and all of that, and basically by the following year, they changed the title again based on the level of success that it had and the continuing marketing success it had for the Southern California Computer Society. And it remained basically this uh, magazine called Interface Age, Interface Age, which was basically for the rest of its run, which ran for another 10 years. Um, and basically, it was uh, a very, very popular magazine with all of the Apple and new microcomputers um, hobbyists that were, uh, that were uh, basically at play at the time. And my favorite part of this whole story is that they actually put a little excerpt of one of the magazines from the July 1976 issue of it, um, back when it was still you know, sort of part of the Southern California Computer Society. And it has quotes from the then director of marketing, Steve Jobs, and director of engineering, Steve Wozniak. Oh, my gosh, that's awesome. And it's just so great. And they're just quotes from these two guys that are just making stuff, right? They're just making stuff in a hobbyist magazine and getting interviewed for this little nonprofit, which I think is just so cool. Imagine like a little nonprofit interviewing us or interviewing somebody today in your business and and it was just really cool. The quote that was the, the best f for this was, this was a Steve Jobs quote now. And here's, here's the quote. It says, you know, most of the real creative and innovative ideas come about by communicating with these people, meaning the customers. If we can rap, and they actually use the word rap, if we can rap about their needs, their feelings, their motivations, we can respond appropriately by giving them what they want. In other words, by talking to customers and understanding their needs, feelings, and motivations, we can respond appropriately by giving them the products that they want. Then he goes on to say, most of the companies that started in this market are now responding to industrial needs, and the hobbyist now has to yell louder than before. And as Steve Jobs said, the hobby market may still only be a baby, but it's going to grow up fast like the CB market did. I love the fact that he puts it to CB radio oh, like the man. CB market did, and we plan to grow with it as Apple. Just an awesome, awesome interview. It was so fun to go through the history there and hear about this magazine that basically had really launched the Southern California Computer Society as a nonprofit and then turned into sort of a mainstream publication for computing, um, sort of after seeing the context of Steve Jobs. Just, a, I thought, an awesome example of this old marketing. That's, that's fantastic. So just real quickly, should I go see the movie? Uh, yeah, you should, totally should go see okay. the movie. It's 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 entertaining. All right. You know the kids are not going to like it. You know, and I I think I think you'll dig it. I mean, it's 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 smart. It's the language is very very smart. It's intelligent. It you know it gets a little overwrought at times. You know, like Aaron Sorkin tends to do with his sort of stylized dialogue. But I, I think it. I liked. I really liked it. I enjoyed it. All right, that sounds well. Maybe you know we're on the road here traveling. I mean, maybe we should go see it again. You can see it. I'll, Catch I'll, a flick, man. Yeah, I'm going to. I, I, as long as I got my big tub of popcorn, I'm game. Whatever. I want to see Spectre. Let's go do that. Oh, I want to see Spectre so bad. Oh, I'm, I'm My so wife wants to see, see the Sandra Bullock movie, which I believe has the worst title, Our Brand is Crisis. And I'm like, did they really have to, yes, I know. Have to use that title? I know the documentary yeah. is that, but do they have to use that title. But anyways. So uh, yeah. so that's it. Yeah, we're um, so we're in we're, we're, yeah, we're masterclassing it up, man. Boston, Boston City, one of six. New York is Thursday. 
San Diego yeah. is next Tuesday, and San Francisco is next that's right. Thursday. So anyone that's out there, come see us, contentmarketingconf.com. We want to see you. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for hanging around today. That is it for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose, and we're signing off. Tweet us up, you know, hashtag this old marketing. We do love those story ideas. They keep them coming. We love the this old marketing examples. We love the story ideas. They are so, so very helpful for us in the show. And if you have a question or you have an idea or you like email just better than hashtagging it, well, send us an email too at this old marketing at contentinstitute.com. And if you like this episode, number 104, we do hope you'll consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher.com. All the links that we talked about today will be in the show notes, available in the show itself, and of course on the webpage at thisoldmarketing.com on Saturday. All right, remember folks, it is your story to tell. Tell it well. We'll see you next week on This Old Marketing. is part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.